Global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. The importance on the global stage of developing and developed nations waxes and wanes while consumption and interconnectedness steadily increase, all the while laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. But how do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Brickens, international business attorneys. I'm Fred Rockefort. And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every week, we take a targeted look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of international experts. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finance, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please connect with us on social media to comment and suggest future topics and guests. Today, we're joined by Kelly Sullivan. From 1997 to 2003, he served as the head coach at Willamette University. He mentored 23 Division III All-Americans at Willamette, including individuals who won five national championships. Kelly, welcome to Harris Brickens Global Law and Business. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate being here. Kelly, you've got such an impressive bio here from being an athlete yourself to many individuals you've coached. We'd love to hear a little bit more about your background. Can you tell us some of your highlights, what you really enjoyed seeing and doing, and some of your philosophy as an athlete turned coach? Well, I was raised on the Oregon coast, really um, small town, dairy farm kid. Um, went to Willamette University myself coming out of high school and in college. Really got involved in the whole side of like the interest in coaching, uh, just working with people and and service. And I had some um, really good role models growing up in high school, um, also in college, that um, just kind of led me in that direction. So eventually I ended up, after I graduated from Willamette University undergrad, I was going to grad school at Lewis and Clark in Portland, Oregon. And um, the coaches at Clackamas Community College, which was nearby, they asked me if I was interested in coming over and volunteering and helping um, their program in cross country and track. And um, I said, for sure. And of course, there was no pay involved, but it didn't matter. And I found myself going in at three o'clock initially. Then I started going in at noon. Then I started showing up at seven o'clock in the morning, going to school full time and working. And I just fell in love with the opportunity and just working around 18 to 22 year olds. Um, Actually, at that time, it was 18 to 20-year-olds on a junior college team. And I was only 23 at the time. Um, And eventually, they offered me a full-time position. Uh, My first job at Clackamas, I was 80% working in student activities and student government, and then 20% coaching cross-country and track. And I spent four years at Clackamas. Um, We had some really neat success there and then I got hired at Auburn University, which is in the deep south in Alabama. So that was a big move for somebody at the age of 27 who was raised in a town of uh, 250 people um, on the Oregon coast. But I, I took the opportunity and um, went down there with the idea that I had no idea how long I would be there. 
Um, but I was there for 12 years and I had a great opportunity there. I, I worked for a guy by the name of Mel Rosen, who eventually became the head men's Olympic coach in 1992. And if there really is any one person has to take responsibility for who I've become as a coach, good or bad, it was uh, fortunately I worked for one of the greatest people we ever had in the profession in Mel. Um, and then um, moved back to Oregon, had elderly parents. So moved back to Oregon to help take care of my parents with two of my siblings um, back in Salem and spent seven and a half years coaching at my alma mater at Willamette University, which is a division three school. And then um, in 2005, Oregon State University reached out to me to ask if I was interested in re helping restart their track and field programs and cross country programs at Oregon State. They had an, unfortunately had dropped men and women's track and cross country at Oregon State back in 1988. And so 17 years later, I took on probably the biggest challenge I had in this profession, actually starting a Pac-10 at that time, Pac-12 when I left, a Division One program at a place that they hadn't had a program in 17 years. And we started out with one scholarship. We had no track facility. And over the 13 years I was at Oregon State, we raised around $12 million and built a state-of-the-art track facility, and they're fully funded. And uh, it was one of the greatest opportunities and adventures I've ever had. Decided that I miss coaching both genders because at Oregon State, it was women only. And uh, so took a step back and was looking to find a location where I could uh, work with men and women again. And um, this opportunity at Seattle University came four years ago. I jumped at it and have been up here for the past four years. So that's the journey I've been on in this profession. So Kelly, part of your very impressive resume includes uh, having served as the Team USA assistant coach at the 2001 World Track and Field Championships in Canada. You were also an assistant men's coach at the 1994 US Olympic Festival in Colorado Springs. We are recording as the uh, Tokyo Olympics are, are, are taking place. And, and certainly for me, these events give me an opportunity to think about all the, the logistics that go into planning these events at all levels. I used to, to work for the State Department and I was uh, in China during the, the years leading up to to the Beijing Olympics and, and and even the U.S. Embassy in Beijing would get involved, right? Because there's just so many things that are taking place. You know, you have VIPs that are visiting. You have to worry about making sure that all the athletes get visas. And that's just on the administrative side of things. So looking at the sporting side of things, I, I'd love to hear more about the kind of preparation and planning that goes into the coaching aspects for these events. Just to get things started, I mean, how early do you start preparing for an event of this magnitude? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. You know, fortunately, I was living, um, you know, Auburn University was only an hour and a half out of Atlanta. So when the Olympic Games were, were in Atlanta, um, fortunately, we were close enough that we got a pretty good eye view as far as like what it was taking for a city like um, Atlanta to put on, you know, the Olympic Games and everything. And like you said, being on those different staffs that I was on, and then we did a lot of things that we traveled overseas with a lot of teams with USA Track and Field. And, 
you know, I, I, I picture what's going on in Japan right now in Tokyo and just seeing how challenging and how busy and all the layers there were in Atlanta under, you know, a non-COVID period of, of time and all that sort of stuff, um, you know, and how, how regiment they were on processing all the athletes, processing all the coaches, um, you know, in most cases, you're, you have your country's staff, um, you have your head coaches, your assistant coaches, you have your team managers and all that sort of stuff that travel with each one of these um, different uh, governing bodies, be it track and field or if it's men's basketball or women's basketball or something like that. But then you have all the personal coaches that every one of these athletes also have. And so there's the, all these layers down of all these different people. You have one one person, one person who's qualified for the Olympic Games, but there's just this series of people underneath them um, that also are going to ask requests for opportunities and access and all of that sort of stuff. And it's it's mind-boggling how much work and time and preparation um, that goes on. I mean, the minute any country gets um, the green light that they have been given a world championships or an Olympics or any of that sort of stuff, um, the job has been already in place probably three or four years before that even occurred, right? Because they've had to do all the work, all the um, stuff before to put up the bids and do the whole thing. And then the minute they get um, the okay to do it, then those people, I mean, it's nonstop. And now with what's going on in Japan, just with all the restrictions and all that, um, I know there's a lot of personal coaches for these athletes that now are not allowed to go over. Um, usually you have training camps for all these different uh, teams that go over and there was no training camps. Um, so it's, you know, what they're experiencing right now is really, really, really challenging. And I can't imagine what this last year and a half has been for Tokyo and Japan and, and all that. I know what, how difficult it has been for like our sport, um, in USA track and field, you know, and the coaches that have athletes who have made the Olympic teams and then the individual athletes who have, have been like every twist and turn for last year and a half, but, um, how they're doing it is over there right now. I'd be curious to just be a fly on the wall and see what some of this is going on. So you were involved in the Olympic Festival in 1984, which was the penultimate festival before the cancellation in 1985. I was not familiar with the Olympic Festival because I was pretty young when all this was going on. Can you explain a little more about the Olympic Festival? What was its purpose and why did it end? What happened was it was introduced in 1978, I believe. Um, and the reason why it was first started is because the communist countries at that time um, had an event themselves that was very, very, very similar to this. And so the United States just felt like they needed to come up with something because those countries were doing so well um, at the international level. And so the sports festival was started um, in 1978, and then it grew from there, including almost every, every event that they could get um, that was going to be at the Olympics. And so it ran its course through 1994, I believe, or 1995. And then unfortunately, 
they just decided to um, stop doing the the sports festival. But it was highly successful. Um, it allowed like, you know, you'd have like people who actually had won Olympic gold medals, you know, Carl Lewis competed in these, and then you'd have your developmental athletes, you know, in the same, in the same venue. Um, and it also was a, a really good training and coaching um, opportunity for people that were eventually going to make Olympic staffs or world champion staffs. So a lot of it was just preparation as like a dress rehearsal for what the Olympics experience would be like for all these different sports. It is interesting as I've been watching the medal counts. I kind of chuckled to myself seeing that we still have the powerhouses somewhat split between the Western, more free governments and nations and communist countries all at the top of the medals boards. And it's really interesting as you're talking about the Cold War and how we're trying to outdo each other, like in the space race. And as I didn't know, in the sports arena as well. We're all still trying to produce the top talent to show in part that our system of governance is superior. It's a very interesting piece of world history baked into this global competition. I'm curious as to how the coaching staff is selected, especially in the track and field context. It, it seems that depending on the sport and, of course, depending on the kind of competitions that there are, it seems that things can vary. Uh, for example, I'm a big soccer fan and, and national teams are usually permanent establishment, right? They're, they're competing on a regular basis. So, so usually their coaching staff will, will be full-time professionals that, you know, are, are hired for a specific period of time. And depending on how they do, maybe their, their contracts are renewed. But I remember, for example, when I was in, in high school, for example, one of our basketball coaches would on occasion be drafted to go coach the national basketball team. This is in, in, in Puerto Rico. And after that, he'd go and, and, and lead the team at the Olympic qualifiers or something. And then he'd come back and get on with his job. So obviously there's there's a whole range of, of arrangements, but perhaps you can shed some light, at least within the, uh, the disciplines with which you're familiar, you, perhaps you can help us understand a little bit better how it is that particular coaches are, are chosen to lead a team. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're totally right, because there are sports like soccer and even basketball, right, that have like a continuation of a staff, a paid staff, um, most of the most of the Olympic sports, though, are similar to what your experience was with, you know, the guy that was your basketball coach in uh, Puerto Rico. It was the same thing with track and field. Um, what they have is USA Track and Field has a convention every year. And at those conventions, um, what they do is leading up to a world championship or an Olympic Games, there's a committee that gets together and people can nominate uh, different individuals for different positions on upcoming um, staffs that are going to go world indoor, world cross country, world juniors, um, all these different ones that travel and compete. Um, and, and of course, the Olympics is the ultimate for anybody uh, to, to make a staff. And so somehow a person gets their name on a list and eventually on that list, their name is brought up and somebody has written out um, why that individual should be considered. And then it just goes through that, that kind of a process. And, um, and normally what happens is, is that they try to make a staff of 
individuals that have had past experience who may have started out as a manager and then become an assistant and, and then eventually move up. Um, and then they also try to filter in new young individuals or someone who's really, really having some great success, um, either with a number of professional athletes or at the collegiate level. Um, and so it's really just one of those um, areas. And there's some people who have literally no interest in ever getting involved, who if they would get involved, would have would have become Olympic coaches. And then there's some other people out there who are really driven to get involved and are just really super voluntarily active on so many different levels that people notice just how passionate they are and how hardworking they are and want them to be on those kind of those kind of staffs. Swimming is very similar to what track and field does too. So you've coached a few athletes who have gone on to become Olympians, including Nick Simmons, who took fifth in the 800 in the 2012 Olympics. He started out as a Division Three runner under your coaching at Willamette University. So as a coach, how do you prepare these types of athletes for the next level of athletics? You know, to be fair, I had an assistant coach of mine, uh, Matt McGuirk, who doesn't get his, get enough, enough credit for what he did with Nick. The thing I've learned over the years is it takes a village to do it. Um, even when Nick was at Willamette, um, obviously he ended up coming out of high school going to a division three school instead of like a university of Oregon or, you know, a Stanford or, you know, an Arkansas or something like that. Um, so his development, um, it took a lot of, a lot of people, you know, and the credit is really to him because he really kind of like had a goal, had a dream, had a passion. And what coaches end up doing is, um, the staff that was there when I first, when Nick first showed up at Willamette, all of us recognized really early on with him that he had, there was something different and unique about him. And um, he had a he had a real dream to become one of the best. He won Division Three 1500-800 title as a true freshman. And there's no one had ever done it to that point. And there's no one who's done it since. You know, he just took every opportunity he had at Willamette and just got better and better and better. You know, it led him to two Olympic teams. But, you know, Matt McGuirk had a lot to do with what he did. Sam LaPrey, who was another assistant on our staff who still works with Nick with his run gun company. And, um, you know, so it, it's anybody who ends up making an Olympic team. It doesn't matter what sport it is and all that. It's just you got to have had people around you. You know, his parents um, were big believers in, in Nick. And, you know, it really, really does take uh, a village. And then once you sit back and you see someone do something really special, um, which every one of these people that are Olympians, um, at some point, if you're coaching them, you're going to see them do something and you should you know, as you're walking back to your car that night to go home, you go, oh, my gosh, that young man or that young woman has got something pretty unique. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons why you get into coaching. But that is one of the one of the greatest highlights is, is find a young man like him or, you know, the first one I had, Brian Abshire, ran for me at the community college level. And then undoubtedly, he wasn't a division one recruit coming out of high school. He was at a JC and then he went to Auburn and you know, he ended up also like Nick made an Olympic team. And 
Um, and that's what's exciting. And fortunately, in this country, we're really privileged and we have, you know, our, our athletes have a lot of opportunities. And um, so, you know, when they do stand out, there's usually more than one person standing with, standing there with their hand up saying, hey, I want to get involved and I want to help this young person. So, yeah, so it's pretty fun. It's exciting to find those people and then and then just you know, for everyone that makes it, you know, 10 for whatever reason, it could be so many variables that go into it. Um, but still, the, the the journey is still exciting, even if you don't end up end up making it. So, Kelly, I am a mediocre athlete at best, but I am very curious about your perspective as a coach for so many years. What is the relative percentage breakdown between a person's raw talent, their willingness to work, their family support, their opportunities and their coaches? You said it takes a village, but I want to drill down in that a little more. If you can tell us whether you think that most people are inherently capable of being great athletes if they have the right external components, or do you think that it's just a special breed of person that needs that self-driving piece to be able to keep moving no matter what? Oh, wow. That's a million dollar question. Like I mentioned, there's just so many variables, right? And if you've been a coach, a collegiate coach, especially for a long time, I think all of us think back on those other young people we've had who had just as much potential or maybe in some cases even more potential than someone else did that that did make the breakthrough. So it's so individual. I mean, you know, even when you have a team sport like softball or anything like that at the Olympics, you know, those Olympic teams are made up of 20, 24 individuals who somehow found a way to reach the top of the of the mountain as a first baseman or a catcher or a pitcher to qualify to make an Olympic team. So I think it's really hard to answer that question into like breaking it down, but I totally understand what you're asking because it's it that is a really curious question. You know, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? And you know, I've seen athletes, when we were coaching at Auburn, we had a number of, of young people make U.S. Olympic teams, but also other countries. And like we had one young man that, you know, he ended up being world champion a couple of times in the 400 hurdles. And he was a very gifted, gifted athlete, obviously, but he was such a diligent worker. He was so focused uh, in a good way. Um, and there probably were athletes out there who had more natural talent than he did. But when you put the puzzle together and if there was 10 pieces of the puzzle, um, that young man probably had nine and a half of them down, um, when somebody else may have only had seven of them in peace and that, that little difference or even eight, eight and a half, but that difference made the difference between him winning a couple of world championships and someone else, you know, placing behind them. Sure. I suppose that the egalitarian in me wants to say that most of success in life is showing up and doing the work and trusting that you can adapt to the situations as they get harder and harder, whether that's in your professional life or your athleticism. That's just my philosophy. I don't know if anybody cares, but that's how I feel about it. And I preach this to my kids as well, that you need to show up and work hard. And if you want to do great things, you put in the work every day, every time it needs to happen. You put in the work, you just keep going, and you look at the results later, and you're amazed at what you're able to accomplish. I look back and I think back, I have a picture here on my wall of four young men that ran for us at Auburn, and three of them 
you know, they ran on a relay for us at Auburn, and all three of them made, you know, medals in the world's Olympics. And each one of them, um, it, it, none of it came by accident. You know, they didn't do it because they were mentally stronger, but they didn't put the work in or they were physically more talented than somebody else and they were lazy. I mean, it is that combination of you can't get to that level and have it happen by accident. If you do, which it has happened, you won't sustain it. And that's that's probably the biggest thing is, is, you know, is people are always trying to like find a shortcut when the reality is, is when the off season comes around, you just put the old gray sweats back on and go out the door and, and just go right back at it again and just follow the, follow the process, turn one year into three years and three years into five years. And if you do it and uh, you stay healthy, you got a lot of, you have a really good chance. Kelly, one of the other aspects that fascinates me about sport in general, but but specifically when we're talking about these large events such as the Olympics or to major endeavors, right, as, such as coaching a, a, a national team, one of the, the aspects that, that, that I find interesting is, is, is the travel, right, both from a logistical perspective, but, but also more broadly. And, and I know that you have experience with that. So I'd love to hear more about your experiences traveling, uh, how was it to compete in different countries? How were the interactions with the other athletes and, and, and coaches? What were some of the, the challenges and, and, and maybe, maybe even just some tidbits that, that help outsiders like me understand what, what it's actually like? I mean, I imagine that in some ways traveling uh, as part of, you know, to participate in athletic competitions is, is very different from, from your, your run-of-the-mill business travel. But then again, I imagine that in some ways it's it's very similar, right? At the end of the day, we we, we all have to get on on planes, and we all have to go through through passport uh, checks and things of that sort. We all have to to deal with with what our hotel is throwing our way, right? And sometimes, I mean, I know that. If I stay at a bad hotel, it, it, it impacts my own performance in my meetings the next day, which are obviously far less demanding from a physical standpoint. So I can imagine that even things like that, even seemingly minor aspects can can have an impact. So anything you'd like to to share with us on that score, we'd welcome it. Yeah, I think it's funny because when you mentioned that, I think about pre-internet, no cell phone era and... You know, initially when I traveled overseas, I, I was in charge for a long time. I think it was seven, eight years of taking what we call it was an emerging elite group over to Europe to compete. And we did it in the Scandinavian countries. We did it in Sweden and Finland and Norway. And and um, the way I communicated with athletes, coaches, and then meet directors and everything across the United States and then over in those countries was a pay phone or a, an office phone and then a fax machine. And I think about it now, it was like, I don't know how we did it. And you'd meet all your athletes at, like in New York City, you picked a team to go over. They'd all fly into New York City. You know, you had to go through your governing body to get all the tickets. You had to be in touch with these people over in Busan, outside of Stockholm, Sweden, to make sure that they were going to take care of your lodging and, and you'd fly and travel and you'd end up in, in places and you're hoping that the bus that was supposed to pick you up is actually going to pick you up because the last time you had communication was with the fax. And then we traveled all over those areas. 
One of the biggest things I learned out of it through my own personal experience was just personal relationships. You know, the personal relationships that you develop with, you know, like in my case, doing those kind of trips, those were kind of like they were non-USA teams, but they were a part of USA track and field. And so it was myself and one other coach who basically did all the planning and USA Track and Field gave us the okay to do it and they gave us the resources to do it. And so what I had to learn how to do was like, I had to like learn how to communicate with people and develop incredibly strong personal relationships through all these different layers of individuals and be it other college coaches or or professional coaches or agents, um, and then the meet directors over in Europe. I mean, it was my first experience of going over to these meets and going from point A to point B and getting lodging and getting transportation to go from a meet, let's say that was in Stockholm to a little town in Umia up in the north part of Sweden. You had to, you had to be able to get plane tickets and you relied on the meet directors to help you with travel and, um, and then catching a boat to go over to Finland, you know, and, and getting over there and then traveling from one meet to another and, you know, language barriers that were extremely unique and cultural differences that were extremely unique, but, you know, just being really respectful, communicating, a lot ahead of time, communicating during the process, and then sitting down with the 10 to 12 athletes that we would bring over every summer and say, every single one of you have got to race really, really, really well. You got to have great performances over here because that's the only way we're going to get accepted into the next meet or another meet three or four weeks, you know, or two and a half weeks down the line because all those meets that you were competing at over in Europe the next meet that was hosting, those meet directors would be at the meet before that, and they'd be sitting up in the stands with their little pad of paper and circling, yeah, we want Joey there, but ooh, Timmy didn't look very good, and they scratch out Timmy, because it's all about money over there. Our sport in Europe is really big, and there's a lot of A-level meets, there's a lot of B-level meets. And they all surround, especially in those those areas, they surround towns when in the middle of their festivals. You know, there's summer solstice events. It's a big part of their festival. So when we brought Americans over, they were always looking for Americans to come over. But if you got dead last in your event, uh, you wouldn't go on to the next meet. So it was really, really, it was a great learning experience. It still goes on. Those meets still are all over Europe. But, you know, you learn a lot and, you know, I personally grew a lot and every one of those athletes that we brought over there, most of them, it was the first time they'd ever left the United States and gone overseas. And a number of them ended up making our Olympic teams eventually. Those initial personal experiences and travel and, you know, jumping on a bus and jumping on a, getting in a cab and jumping on a, you know, a train and then on a plane and doing that whole thing. Um, it wasn't glamorous in any way, form, or fashion, but it was a lot of fun. Kelly, would you say that a coach is a coach is a coach across the world? Would you say that you noticed idiosyncrasies about coaches from Europe or Germany or particular parts of Europe or any other parts of the world? What do you think about that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, very, very, very similar. When I was on the U.S. staff for the World Championships, 
up in Edmonton. I got to know the Kenyan distance coach at that time really, really well. And we ended up planning where we were going to take our groups every day out to do runs and workouts and, and all that. And it was a lot of fun. I mean, I think the thing that him and I both recognized, even though he was born and raised in in, uh, in Kenya, and I was, you know, here in the United States was, is we were, um, you know, we were both in it for exactly the same reasons. And we were intrigued to find out what, I was intrigued to find out what they were doing. And he was intrigued to watch what our young uh, athletes were doing. And, you know, he was very, he was very generous. He was funny. He had a great sense of humor. You know, it was just one of those things that you realize that people are people all over the world. They just come from a different place. It was, it was fun to meet the international coaches. And, you know, I'm still in touch with quite a few of them uh, years later and, and currently. And so it's, it's, it's been a, one of the benefits of, of being involved in the sport out just outside of college, but at, at the other levels. And I've always had great relationships with, you know, my colleagues in at the college level and the high school level, just because of the fact that you can learn so much and there's a lot of similarities and, you know, we all got into this business for whatever reason. And it's really a neat group to be around. Kelly, it's been so much fun to have you on the podcast with us today. Thank you for reigniting all the old sports memories and desires in my life. Thanks for being a part of it. We always love to close with recommendations, something from you, from me, and from Fred. What have you read or listened to or watched recently or something that's kind of an old go-to for you that you recommend for the audience today? Yeah, during the COVID period, I did a lot of reading. And one of the books I, I recommend is called Stillness is the Key. It's written by Ryan Holiday. Um, it's a fantastic Fantastic book. Um, another one is called Daring Greatly and uh, by Brand Brown, Brown, I mean. And um, I enjoyed both of those books quite a bit. I actually, I think I read a lot of books that some of them I, I got a lot out of, it, but those two I definitely did. And then one in my profession, um, somebody that I just have a tremendous amount of respect and and admiration for is a gentleman by the name of Coach Joe V. Hill, who coached at Adams State University up in Colorado. Um, and uh, fortunately, they finally did a biography on him, and it's called Chasing Excellence. Um, and it says it's the remarkable life and ins- inspiring philosophy of Coach Joe V. Hill. And it's definitely a book that even if you aren't um, interested in sports and athletics and all that sort of stuff. I think it's also a, it's a great human story of of uh, someone who started out uh, very humbly and eventually ended up coaching Olympic gold medalist and and just his his ability to be successful and and I knew him I still know him very personally to this day and it's just a fantastic read also. Excellent. Thank you for those recommendations, Fred. What do you have for us today? So I'm pretty sure that I've recommended either specific episodes or the podcast as a, as a whole, the Sam Harris's uh, podcast, Making Sense. But I'd like to go ahead and specifically recommend episode 256. And the title of that is A Contagion of Bad Ideas. In addition to the Olympics, the other thing that we are contending with at the moment is, of course, this uh, renewed concern over COVID with the Delta variant. We've been 
obviously de- dealing with COVID for for some time now. And, and in fact, there there is some overlap, right, between the Olympics and that because of all of the, the different concerns that were expressed regarding the event and how it could turn into a super spreader. The reason I'm recommending the podcast is that, that it really goes to the heart of, of many of the issues with which we are dealing with, uh, at least in the United States at the moment, regarding vaccines and skepticism more broadly. So I found it extremely useful and uh, hopefully these issues will will go away before too long, but to the extent that, that that they are still relevant, and they probably will be when you hear the podcast, I highly recommend this episode, really sober analysis of, of many of the issues that are really troubling a, a lot of people these days. So I won't uh, editorialize. Uh, I'll, I'll just let listeners tune in. And just generally, I, I find Making Sense to be an excellent podcast if this is a tough decision to make. But if I had to only choose one podcast that I could listen to, this would probably be it. And I and I do listen to to a lot of podcasts, in addition, of course, to Global Law and Business. So again, Making Sense, uh, episode number 256, A Contagion of Bad Ideas. Jonathan, what do you have for us this week? I'm staying with the sporting theme and recommending a show that I've been watching with my kids. It's called All Round Champion. They just finished season three, and I think it was started in Canada. It's now been picked up and repurposed by BYU TV, so it's free. You can find it online, and we'll provide the link. What I like about this is they take 10 young athletes between the ages of, say, 11 to 15 or 16. Each of them has won some kind of championship and is very prominent in their own sport. So 10 kids, 10 different sports. And then they make them spend 10 weeks together. Each week they learn a new sport with the person who is dominant in that sport being the coach, along with a professional level coach or athlete. And then the other nine athletes compete in that different sport every week, and they get points based on how they rank in the end of the week competition. At the end of the 10 weeks together, you get to see who is the best all-around athlete. As a parent, my favorite thing about this is seeing kids who are at very elite levels at such a young age and then really getting out of their comfort zone into sports in areas they've never even touched. There's a lot of crying, which I think is excellent because it's good for kids to see other kids work hard and be uncomfortable. I love seeing the kids get uncomfortable and building confidence, and it's fun to get exposed to different sports as well. So it's been a great show that I've been able to enjoy with my younger kids as they're exploring their own athleticism now as they get into that age range. So all-round champion, highly recommended. And with that, Kelly, we want to thank you again for being with us, and we look forward to following you and hopefully hearing more about some of your impressive athletes who you'll be coaching in the future. Well, I appreciate being on the podcast with you, and best wishes to both of you and everybody else. So thank you. Global Law and Business is a production of Harris Bricken. The team includes Madeline Williams and Michaela Moore. The music is composed by Stephen Schmidt. If you like the show, subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review there. We like to hear what you think of the show, and it helps new listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then. (laughs) 